We're in Hebrews chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven... There is no longer any sacrifice for sin. This is God's word. Our Father, we've sung that our debt is paid and paid in full. And Father, uh, how uh, we long, certainly my prayers, that we understand more of that this evening. For those of us who have been Christians for years, that truth is uh, refreshed in its richness. For those of us who are not quite sure. We become clearer than ever what is on offer in the death and resurrection ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would we understand these things, Father, in a way that moves our hearts to love and serve you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the great encouragement of Hebrews 10 is that if you're here tonight as a Christian, you are perfect, which is a wonderful encouragement. Chapter 10, verse 14, by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever the holy ones, those who are being made holy, Christians, just what he means by that extra bit. If you're a Christian here tonight, you are perfect And we're going to say that in a number of different ways, but that's it, really. Uh, we can have a short service and really go for a, a nice long time, for a, for a go for a drink. You're perfect. That is how God views you. It's wonderful. 
Yeah, we need to understand perfect. I mean, there are not many times when we achieve perfection in this life. Uh, and if we do, it, it soon passes. Some of us may recall a time when we played the, the perfect sports game, the perfect round of golf, the perfect tennis match, the match, the game where we kicked everything and it went perfectly where we desired it to be. Once upon a time, those things happen, but they happen and then they end. That was a bit of a shame. Occasionally, we think, you know, that evening, I looked perfect. But those don't come around very often. You may think, oh, yeah, I, I get my dinner jacket out, I look perfect in that. Ooh, not anymore, you don't. The perfection, it comes, perhaps, occasionally, but it goes, some of you would perhaps at some point in your lives have scored some a perfect mark in an exam. Great. But don't worry, there'll be more exams and you won't get perfection again. So that's just life. That's how it goes. Perfection. It's a rare thing. But the perfection we're talking about here in Hebrews chapter 10 is relational perfection. Relational perfection before the Lord. So when the writer says that the Christian is perfect, he doesn't mean physically perfect. I hope that much is obvious. It's not that you become a Christian physically all is well. Just the ravages of time take their mark. Hair grows thin, flesh droops, bums sag. That just happens in life. And sickness will still come. Of course it will. Not physically perfect. Not morally perfect either. We'll always sin and make errors this side of heaven. But relationally perfect. That is, we can have 100% confidence that at any point, in any place, we can draw near to the living God and call him Father and know precisely what he's thinking of us, which is love. So uh, let me just show you, that's the sort of perfection we're talking about. Uh, For example, we had uh, read at the beginning, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeat endlessly year after year. Repeated. Make perfect those who draw near to worship. The law could not make perfect those who draw near. Jesus makes perfect in what sense? The ability to draw near to God. Or another little contrast, uh, chapter uh, 9, verse 9. Here's what we're talking about. An illustration for the present time. The gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to cleanse the conscience of the worshipper. By contrast, Jesus does cleanse conscience when we looked at chapter 9. So in that sense... In knowing for certain that you can always draw near to God and be certain that he always loves you, in that sense, absolutely perfect. It doesn't ebb and flow because Christ's once-for-all sacrifice ensures that the Christian is permanent forever. Sorry. Perfect forever. Now again, you've got to think how rare that is to have that sort of relational certainty. A uh, number would have, of course, had the experience of uh, dating and you're going out with someone you think, oh, what does he think of me? Where's this going? I don't know. I'm not too certain. That's fairly normal. It's very easy to be in a marriage and think, hmm, what is she thinking of me right now? Uh, are we friends? 
Are we friends? Are we okay? Or are you angry? I don't know. I can never really tell. Yeah, that's kind of normal, uh, even in uh, many marriages. But to have absolute certainty, to know that the Lord loves and welcomes and says, draw near. That's wonderful. That is wonderful. Uh, these days, many of us will offer up our, will present our offerings. Not many of us will offer sheep and goats and bulls. Uh, if you do, you know, don't do it publicly. It'll be viewed as weird. But not many of us. But uh, of course, many these days will uh, frequently, daily, several times a day, uh, make their offerings on social media. And we'll say, do you like me? Do you like me? Can I have some feedback, please? I've, I've presented my latest offering, and how do you feel about me, oh friends who are out there? And we're constantly putting more and more offerings out because we need to know. We want that feedback. How do you feel? Am I loved? Am I liked? Am I poked? Whatever it is, we want that feedback because we're not certain. What does that group out there think of us? But to know... With certainty, the love, the affection, the welcome of God as Father is a very wonderful thing. Chapter 10 will tell us again. Christ has perfected you. There's no need to do anything else. There's no need to make any offerings of any kind to him. He has perfected you. It's very wonderful. Once you've trusted in Christ. Now, a little bit of context. It's been a while since we've been in the book of Hebrews. Um, in the autumn, we got as far as chapter 9. So chapter 10 seemed a good place to pick it up again. And uh, if you were here, you'll remember it's a sermon then written for the benefit of Christians who attempted to turn away from Jesus Christ. Now, it's, there are some clues in the, in the uh, book about why that is. So even here in chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 34, they're having a hard time. So chapter 10, verse 34, uh, the writer says, You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Golly. Or verse 33, you were exposed to uh, insult and persecution. Now, so, so these Christians are having a hard time for their faith. And so for some, to drift back to Judaism, if that's their origin, was a tempting thing to do. Judaism, state authorized religion. Roman soldiers wouldn't give you a hard time. Christianity, mmm, give you a hard time because you don't submit to Caesar. So to drift back just for your security was a temptation for them. And uh, what we come to then is the, uh, the, the end of the main section of the letter, chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 18, has been the main theological section in which the, the writer, uh, in the sermon which has been written down for us, has said, now you just remember who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for you and trust him. Look at him. He is magnificent. Don't turn away. And uh, really from this point onwards, he's applying uh, that truth when you get to chapter 10, though, it does seem again that um, some may have been missing, some of his original audience, missing the rituals of Judaism. They liked going to a temple and offering sacrifices, whatever it may be, pigeon, goats, whatever they are offering, seeing them cut up, putting them on an altar, seeing the smoke go up. Because, well, when you do something like that, you're doing something. They've become Christians, and, the, and the, whoever's preached them said, trust in Jesus, he's done everything. Oh, okay. But it doesn't sort of 
I can't see anything, taste anything, feel anything. Back here in my Judaism, I, I could chop things up. I liked that. I could cut up animals. It was fun. And I could offer them and they stank. And it was obviously doing something. Whereas just to believe doesn't do so much. I don't know if this works. Um, recently, I had to make two, uh, two different visits uh, to doctors of various kinds. That first one, uh, slightly longer ago, I'd crooked my back and was sort of bent at 90 degrees. And so uh, I went to an uh, osteopath. I was recommended a cranial osteopath. Anyone, so I, this may be your profession. I'm, I'm not going to insult you, fear not. Uh, anyone been to a, a cranial osteopath? It's slightly bizarre. You sort of stumble in and sort of you come in like Quasimodo and they say, lie down on the couch. It's not a couch, is it? That's bed. What am I, what am I, what am I after? Bed. Lie down on the bed, and um, uh, and they and they do they do, they basically do nothing for half an hour. They can sort of stroke your temples, <laughs> and then they tickle your feet for about half an hour, alternate, and then say, "Thank you very much. Forty quid, please." You think you're having a laugh? You're having a laugh. I could do that. <laughs> I could do that to myself. That is, I'm not paying you for that. It's ridiculous. But actually, I did, and I was persuaded. I went to two sessions. This was completely restored. I don't know how it works. I don't get the body. I'm no doctor. But, but to believe that that was doing anything was quite hard. By contrast, uh, last week, I had to um, I had to have a bit of skin removed. They wanted to take it away, send it to the lab, uh, do some tests. And um, so it was very obvious. The woman got to the doctor, got her knife, and put a bit, bit of knife with me. And then another knife I cut and cut out my flesh. And then um, in order to... Uh, you enjoy, some of you are enjoying this, some of you are not. I'm sorry for that. The, um, uh, and then to stem the blood flow, they cauterize it. So she gets in this sort of soldering iron and... And so it's very obvious something's happening. I see you. You can see the cut. You can see the blood. You can smell your burning flesh. The, uh, uh, it's, oh, it's very unpleasant, actually. But something's happening. And she afterwards says, 40 quid, please. She says, fine, you have my money. You've, you've, you've clearly done something there. I mean, it hurts. Uh, you've taken stuff away. That's good. That's good doctoring, isn't it? None of this sort of, none of this sort of tickling. See, the, the stuff you can see and feel and smell, it's easier to trust than when someone says, no, just believe me, this works. Really? It's just a bit harder to act on faith. And that's the issue, it seems. The audience in this, for this sermon uh, in the book of Hebrews were drifting away because they liked the the certainty, apparently, of the physical, the tangible. They wanted to feel, smell, touch religion. That worked for them. Faith? Really? Is it doing anything? Is Jesus there? A bit harder. A simple contrast he gives us. Our offerings could not perfect us, verses 1 to 10. Christ's offering has perfected us, the second half, 11 to 18. Very simple contrast. Okay. Just two points. That's encouraging, isn't it? Always. Our offerings could not perfect us then, verses 1 to 10. It is slightly dense, uh, the logic, so let's work through it together. Verses 1 to 4, he's saying that the, the sacrifices of the law, they couldn't deal with guilt, really. The sacrifice of the law couldn't deal with guilt. Verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. A foreshadow. 
A sunny day like today, hurrah. You, uh, you might see a shadow coming round the corner. You can see it's a man probably because it's about six foot five, uh, fairly broad shoulders. You get some impression of what the bloke is like coming round the corner from his shadow. The Old Testament law is a shadow, a foreshadow of the work of Christ. It tells us something, just to lack the clarity of seeing God face to face and relating to him. So the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, a cadaver, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, but that not they have stopped being offered, for the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. So you can read through something particularly like the book of Leviticus, all the different sacrifices offered And they maintain people in their relationship with God. But they still feel guilty. Because they know it's not, their sin is not really dealt with. And so verse three, you get an annual reminder of sins, probably a reference to uh, to the day of atonement. A reminder of their sin. How horrible. Because, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I mean, that's obvious, isn't it? Imagine in a football match, uh, in the summer, it'd be the World Cup, and Roy Hodgson uh, makes a substitution, and the commentator says, oh, Roy Hodgson makes a substitution, off comes Wayne Rooney, and on comes, oh, interesting, Fernando the bull. That's the sort of rampaging forward we want up front. You can't swap a bull. You can't have a bull on the football pitch. Well, you could, it'd be quite fun. But it's not late, it's not legal, it doesn't work. And you just say, you can't really have a bull sacrifice for a man. It didn't work. But these annual reminder of sins, the Day of Atonement, if you know it, the high priest would take a bull, place his hands on the head of the bull, and say, my sins are upon you, and kill the bull. It would be offered as a sacrifice. And then he'd take a goat, place his hands on the goat, and say, the sins of the nation are on this goat. It be sacrificed as an offering that's what they did. It's not just a pantomime, not just a visual aid. It was their way of expressing their trust in God that he would provide a way of them being forgiven. But they still felt guilty. Let's have a go, see if this works for you uh, by way of illustration. Imagine you're uh, renting a flat for whatever it is, round number, a thousand pounds per month. Uh, that's expensive if there's one of you, it's cheap if there's three of you, whatever. Anyway, it's a thousand pounds a month for your flat. But you're a little bit nervous, or the landlord is a bit nervous when you take on this 12 month contract from January to the end of December. And so the only way you can get this signed off is if your parents underwrite it. And they underwrite and they sign the contract and say, well, if at the end of 12 months any rent is outstanding, we'll pay it. And so on that basis, the landlord says, hey, okay, that's fine, no problem, off you go. Now you start off okay. January, you pay. February, you pay. March, things are a bit tight. And actually, you just don't pay the rent. April, you don't quite recover. The work isn't coming in. You don't pay the rent. Now, things are okay. You're not evicted because the landlord knows there'll be a reckoning at the end of the year and your parents will pay. So you're okay. You're still in your flat, but you're just starting to feel a bit guilty about this because there's a debt you owe that is not scrubbed away. It's still there 
And you feel bad about that. That's the sort of issue that is being spoken of here. So they're still in relationship with God, these offerings, these Old Testament sacrifices. But guilt is not dealt with. The people knew there was a reckoning to come, not at the end of the year, but at some point. They'd be judged by the Lord. So verses 1 to 4, law sacrifices couldn't take away guilt. Verses 5 to 10, law sacrifices that are abolished by Jesus' obedience. Verse 5, well, blood doesn't work. Blood of bulls and goats doesn't work. Therefore, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but a body you prepared for me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings, you're not pleased. Okay, even in the Old Testament, as you can see uh, the quote there from Psalm 40, the Lord repeatedly warned, okay, your sacrifices, they're good, but obedience is what matters. And these animal sacrifices, they can, as it were, sort of sweep sin under the carpet for the time being, but it has to be dealt with at some point. It's obedience that is far more important to me. But Jesus is the one, let's drop down to uh, uh, verse 9, Jesus is the one who does live a life of perfect obedience. So, here I am, I've come to do your will. He, Jesus, sets aside the first, that is the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, to establish the latter. That is, salvation by his perfect obedience. Conclusion verse 10. By that will, by the work of Jesus Christ, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. Perfect forever. Let me just push a dubious illustration for all it's possibly worth. You're flat. You're there and you're, you know, you've paid some months, you've not paid other months. Uh, it gets to November, you know the reckoning is coming just in a, in a little while. And uh, then you get a, you, well, your parents come to visit you in your flat and say, look, we know what's been going on. We know you haven't hit all the rent, but don't panic. We've paid, as we promised we would, we have paid the rent that you failed. And actually, we can see you getting yourself into a bit of a tiz about this. So we've had a word with the landlord. We've done a bit of a transaction and we've bought the flat. We've bought the flat for you, but the title deeds are in your name. How do you feel about that? That transforms everything. I'm still here, but I just feel guilty before. I I know there's a reckoning to come. Oh, okay. Past debts wiped away. Future guaranteed. Brilliant. Someone has bought me a flat in central London. Brilliant. That's extraordinary. How, you know, for hey, parents, ka-ching, well done them. But uh, you see, just, I mean, your attitude is completely different now. So you've got no anxiety over, can I pay, can't I pay? Who cares? It's done. It's done completely, completely going forward. You've got no fears for the future either. I mean, you might have to hoover once in a while, but that's it. The flat is yours. It's in your name. No more payments. Wonderful. That's what's being spoken of here. So verse 10. By this will, by the work of Jesus Christ, he's willing obedience to even go to death upon the cross. We've been made holy, sanctified, set apart, through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. It's done. 
Nothing else. It's done. You're perfect, holy, sanctified. So our offerings couldn't perfect us. But uh, let's push it a little bit further. Verses 11 to 18. Christ's offering has perfected us. Verse 11 is a summary of what's already come before. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, but when this priest, Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins himself upon the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. He sat down. His work is finished. The father is satisfied and he rules over his enemies. Nothing's going to change. When Jesus says you're perfect, nothing alters that. No one threatens that. And so, verse 14, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy, the holy ones. Christians. He has made. Done. Perfect tense. One-off action, ongoing significance. It's finished. If you're a Christian, trusting in the work of Jesus Christ for you, you are perfect. Question. Okay, question. What happens when I sin? Excuse me. I, I still feel a bit bad. Should I feel guilty? Is that, is that wrong? Well, let's think about that. Uh, imagine someone uh, before coming this evening uh, was feeling a little bit peckish and uh, raided, uh, uh, raided the fridge and nicked their housemate's curry that he was going to have a little later on tonight and uh, guzzled it all and has arrived here this evening and feels a little bit guilty about that. Is that, is that right? Is that appropriate? Well, perhaps distinguish a little bit between your status and your actions. I'd suggest. How are you before the Lord? Your status is perfect. You still have freedom to come before him. He still loves you. Because, verse 14, by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you're made perfect forever. You can't lose it. It doesn't go. It doesn't ebb and flow. It's yours. Your state is perfection. Now your actions, well, you need to repent of them for goodness sake. You should repent to the Lord that you've stolen. You should say sorry to your housemate. You should probably make amends to him. You should probably buy him another curry so he doesn't go humble, he doesn't get the rumbly tums and uh, have no food for the night. Um, but there's a difference, you see. Your status is you are perfect. Well, your actions are no doubt. You need repentance. You need to say sorry to the Lord and to the person involved. Okay, what happens if I don't? What happens if I, if I don't say sorry? I refuse to say sorry. Well, God is a loving father. We'll see this in a couple of weeks' time, three or four weeks' time in, in chapter 12. He's a loving father. And therefore, like every good father, he will love you and discipline you if you don't repent. But you're still loved. You're still perfect. When, you know, sometimes happens, my nine-year-old gets slightly aggressive with his sword and sort of takes out one of the neighbor's children, you know, and puts them in hospital, like rarely. Um, when that sort of thing happens, I love him, 
my status of love, he doesn't lose that. But a little bit of discipline is an expression of my love at that moment in time for him and for the neighbor's children. But the status doesn't change. Christ has perfected you. He's one action, he's one offering of himself, ongoing, forever. And so the writer would say, well, we'll get there in a moment, but verse 18, there's no longer any sacrifices required. You don't have to do anything else. There's no more offerings you need to make. Just think how we might go wrong. Three quick things then we're done. Uh, how might we go wrong? Uh, London is a cosmopolitan place, but I'm guessing there aren't many here who are often tempted to slaughter a goat in order to feel less guilty. It's just kind of not us uh, anymore. Other places in the world may be. How might we then be tempted to reject the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus and drift towards things that we can touch, feel, smell, that are more tangible? How might we do that? I mean, there may be a whole number of ways. Let me suggest three little ones. First, the offerings of activity. This is probably the most common one culturally. The sort of offerings where you think, if there's a God, he'll accept me if I do some decent deeds. So if I do a little bit of work for charity, if I volunteer at the school fete, then those, if I do enough of those offerings, then God will accept me. I think that's the most common way culturally, isn't it? Offerings of activity or good deeds. A number of years ago when I was working at a church in Dagenham, uh, every year we'd go door knocking uh, in early December to invite people to carol services. Uh, it was fairly dramatic. We called it Operation Gabriel. Um, brilliant. Because, um, uh, yeah, worthy of a snort. The, um, uh, because not only did we go door knocking, but uh, we had a big truck. And behind the truck pulled this vast float which had a, I don't know, it was about 15 foot tall plastic Gabriel. Was it naff? You'd better believe it was. This sort of plastic angel illuminated like Blackpool, you know, all sorts of lights glistening. And you had to compete pretty hard in this part of town. They go for Christmas lights in a big way. So to make a difference, you really had to outlight them and outshine them. And uh, Gabriel had speakers inside him and was blasting out carols. And we used to go door knocking and invite people to carol services. And they loved it. Yeah. Uh, we think. I remember on one year again doing this and knocking on this chap's door and he, uh, he, I would love to come to see you at a carol service. Will you come along on this night? No. No, I'm not coming to a carol service. But uh, it's two quid. We're not door knocking for money. We're not collecting for charity. Uh, thank you very much. But really, we'd just love to see you at a carol service. Take my two quid. Uh, but actually, I don't, we don't need uh, your money. Thank you very, very much. Uh, and I walked away. Take my two quid. And uh, he sort of chucked it at me, and I just let it bounce off my impressive torso, and uh, uh, off it went, and just bounced, and sort of turned away. And walked. I happened to look behind me, which is a good thing too, because he picked up this two coin, and he said, you'll take my effing two pound coin, and threw it at me, and it would have indented the back of my head. You know, the wherewithal to duck. Now, that's a fairly aggressive way of saying, if there's a God... He will take my offering and I will make it, please. I will make this offering and you will not stop me making it. Now that's, that's unusual to be that forceful in your giving to charity, I'd suggest. But as he shouted at me, I don't want to owe God anything. 
just a little, you know, he thinks these offerings of activity or charity are what will put him right with God. I want to do something. Here's two pounds that I can feel, I can touch, and I've done my thing. Go. I guess the most common way culturally. What about in a church setting? I guess here's another one, the offerings of the mass, perhaps. Uh, the Lord's Supper, which we'll, you know, we celebrate uh, uh, actually here weekly, but this service is sort of once a month. It's a wonderful gift of God to his people. Rightly understood, it's an encouragement to our faith. But some will know that in some Christian traditions, particularly if it's referred to as the Mass, as opposed to the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion or something, if it's the Mass, in that sort of tradition, it's not that... Um, it's a helpful thing and an encouraging thing, but you can only receive forgiveness if you take it. You can only receive the merits of Jesus' death if you go along to Mass, because you have to be a part of this offering on a weekly basis or whatever it is. A good thing, really encouraging, but if you can only get forgiveness through taking part in that, no, 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 you've drifted a long way. That fundamentally is contradicting Hebrews 10, once for all. But people love it. Why? Because I can feel it, taste it, touch it, smell it. It's tangible, as opposed to faith, which just sometimes seems nebulous. Uh, offerings of activity, offerings of the mass, last one, offerings of, I don't, know, I don't know how common this is, but offerings of worship. I guess some would feel that the only way they can draw close to God is through the priests with the guitars, or the priests with the microphones, or the priests with the sticks. Someone said to me the other day, I quite enjoyed, no, I didn't enjoy this, it was ridiculous. Uh, but someone said, you do, um, not here, someone said, you, you do know, don't you, that in a church, in a church band, drummers hold the keys to the kingdom. Straight face, deadpan. I mean, how, how terrifying. Sarah, if, if that's you, don't lose the keys. We're all stuffed. <laughs> Whatever you do, put them on a long chain round your neck because you've got the keys. I mean, that's just, that's silly thinking. But what is, what is the thinking there? It's because they control the, I don't, I'm not enough musically talented to understand that sentence, let alone theologically make any sense of it. But I guess the point is, they're the ones holding the band together. And only if the music holds is good enough can you be drawn into the presence of God. You need that offering on a regular basis. Now, please don't mishear me. Singing is great. And we are wonderfully served by the musicians we have here. It is an enormous encouragement to our faith. But you don't need it to be forgiven. You don't need it to draw near to God because chapter 10, verse 14, by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he's made you perfect forever if you're trusting in him. But why do people like it? Because they can feel it, touch it, smell it. Yeah. Golly. Now, Jesus Christ has done it once and for all. So enjoy what he's done. 
uh, the whole section gets closed off with another uh, reference to Jeremiah 31, a fairly significant passage if, if you've been here for the book of Hebrews. Here's how it summarizes it. Here are the two wonderful benefits of uh, uh, held together uh, in Hebrews thinking of the new covenant. There is definitive forgiveness. You made perfect once for all and the law is written within you so you can live differently. Let me just read these. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. You don't need to do anything. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are perfect. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? And once you trust in his death, oh, look what will happen, verse 16. He'll write his law upon your hearts. And he'll write his law upon your mind. Oh, you'll be sanctified in a whole new way. The law no longer external, but internal, universal for all Christians, for all believers. There's a new desire to obey. Oh, yeah, that'll follow. If you know your perfect status, of course you'll long to obey. Of course you will if you know what Jesus has done for you. But you'll obey out of delight knowing that your offering doesn't achieve anything in your status before the Lord because the verdict upon your life if you're trusting in Jesus Christ is perfect because of him let's pray together Father, please continue to be at work, we ask, driving that truth deep into our hearts and our minds, that through the one offering of the Lord Jesus Christ, once for all we are made perfect. We can always draw near to you. We can be certain of your affection upon us. And so, Father, as we're seeing in a moment, accept it. In the Son you loved, clothed in righteousness divine, the bar to heaven is removed, all your merits, Lord, are mine. That is a wonderful truth. Father, would we rejoice in knowing our perfect status, and therefore, would we draw near to you with confidence through Jesus Christ. Amen.